and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Glad the gang's back together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm glad to be glad to be back. Thank you for uh, thank you to Amanda for filling in yeah. on an episode that has a surprising amount of response. Um, <laughs> I should leave more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was... I was really surprised because I felt bad. I I felt like the episode's response would be like, why didn't you talk more about Scandinavian movies? Because that was ostensibly our topic and we barely talked. Like it ended up like at a certain point we were like running out of time. We were like, okay, here's a bunch of movies from Denmark that we've seen. And just like (laughs) listing movies. Um, We didn't talk about like you know we just we talked about directly we didn't talk about like the themes they have in common right. or the history like the stuff that maybe someday we'll get into so I'm, i i was afraid i was afraid the comments would be uh this is an insult <laughs> um uh but i guess maybe the scandinavian cinephile uh community is underserved by podcasts and uh we got a lot of uh great responses and a lot of uh uh, or maybe the Scandinavians are just really polite people because they were like, hey, here's some of the people you should check out. You know, yeah, that was a lot of it. So I, I have some some homework to do. Uh, you know, what? let's just pawn it off on Jim and have him do it <laughs> and then just, uh, you know, have him <laughs> come back after two months or something and say, yes, I'm very depressed now. Thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, what we should do is we should uh, take this as a as an indicator and uh, find some podcast about scandinavian film maybe even in uh another language and uh you know take that into the fleets and then we have this weird international uh, yeah you guys you guys (laughs) uh make a podcast make a scandinavian i wonder what is the of the scandinavian languages because one thing i learned from these comments is that like I always thought Liv Oman was Swedish, but no, she's Norwegian. And mm. I always thought Elise Vikander was Danish, but no, she's Swedish, I think. Mm. Uh, so it turns out a lot of these actors cross country lines. Yeah. Of those languages, which one is the the lingua franca, as it were? Well, I'm, I know a number of people that will answer, and I am not one of them. So um, listeners, comment section, please. So yeah, whatever that is. Somebody make a podcast about Scandinavian movies in that language. I feel like I met... So I, I've, as you know, I will occasionally uh, Skype with uh, listeners. You uh-huh. frown upon it, but I've met a number I of... I don't frown upon it. You I mean, for that. myself. Sure. I would be terrified. Well, you, anytime I say it, you regularly like shake your head and say, like, I don't get it, or whatever. And, uh, but, you know, uh, that's no, the but thing. No, but I think, no, you're seeing, you're seeing my shaking head as I don't get it. I'm seeing, I, I mean it as like... Uh, God bless you. Oh, okay. That's what I mean. Uh, here's, it usually comes from like, it's 3 a.m., Everyone I know is asleep. Hey, what's going on over here? Because, you know, I'm Facebook friends with some listeners and uh-huh. I see that they're awake and uh, they have comment. They've contacted me before. And so I just like, hey, you know how we uh, had like an in-depth text conversation? You want to Skype and talk about movies? And the answer is usually a fairly enthusiastic yes. You know, one of their uh, fucking heroes uh, just wants to <laughs> wants to talk about movies. Um, and I think one of them actually mentioned that he uh, that he did have a podcast, but uh, but I don't remember. And I and it was in his uh, native tongue. And so uh, yeah, I like the idea that we you know start to branch out, start bringing in some other countries here. This is the whole thing. I'm super excited about it. Let's not limit this to Scandinavia. We have listeners all over the world. Let's get some podcasts. Let's, not in China. 
Uh, we don't have listeners in China. No, because uh, you know you, you know the the map. Yeah, and you see like b- based on color oh, right, how right. many China and Africa. Honestly, um, just black. Like there's there's literally there are zero listeners, and I think it has to do with the accessibility. I feel like just people that's a bummer do not have access to this show. Oh man, that's a bummer. I feel like the Chinese and the people in the continent of Africa yeah would love the show. I think so. And I'd love to hear from them. Yeah. Weigh in. If you're, uh, if you're, you know, uh, if you're getting it under the table or something like that <laughs> over in China, then, uh, let us know, please. It's in a bootleg battleship retention. There's <laughs> uh, like three CDs for one episode being yeah. passed around. <laughs> Be like, uh, Oh, here's their, uh, top 10 of 2016. Uh, you know, we've got them on five discs. We got to think about this international thing. You blow my mind. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, let's pay some bills, right? Okay. Because that's what we do next, right? Uh, yes, I think so. I didn't uh, know I was... Uh, uh, didn't didn't I blow your mind this time, David? You didn't, sure did. Didn't I? That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to tell you. So, uh, okay. So this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available, available on Mubi is a Mike Nichols double feature. The Graduate, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. That uh, was astonishing to me when I read that. Just, I guess, you know, I shouldn't be surprised, but for some reason it just didn't seem that old to me. Maybe it's made with a modern sensibility. I'm not sure, but... Uh, I guess the thing that seems that, like, I remember my freshman year of college going to Best Buy and on VHS purchasing the... 10 year anniversary edition of Edward Scissorhands. And sure. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this movie's 10 years old. Yeah. Now, like t- 10 years goes by so quickly now. Yeah. Cause yeah, the graduate 50th anniversary, I bought the 40th anniversary DVD when it came out. So it's been another 10 years yeah. since I bought that DVD. Well, I was talking to uh, a fellow student who went to, uh, I don't remember what theater was showing it, but they had a, a special screening of uh, LA confidential this past weekend uh, and Kim Basinger and then a surprise appearance by Guy Pierce, uh, cool. which was very exciting. So this friend of mine went to see it and he said, well, you know, it's the 20th anniversary. And I was like, Whoa, wah. wait, what? Like if you'd said 10 years, I would have believed you. I'm still thinking that the nineties are 10 years ago, but they are not. And in fact, if you'd said, okay, well, the 90s, yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, sure, like 91. No, we're getting into the late 90s now. Yeah, that I are was 20 in high school. 20, we were in high school 20 years ago. Yeah. Ugh. I can't wait for my 20-year reunion. Three years to go. I guess so. <laughs> I do. My, uh, my theater teacher is You're not looking forward to well, uh, strolling into the 20 year and hearing, that Tyler Smith's battle super tension. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the only way that would happen is if somehow this became the only form of entertainment in the world. Uh, there's just a huge collapse and somehow there's only one podcast or anything left standing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I'll say this. It's not unlikely my, the way things are going. Watch out. Right. <laughs> Why would we be spared? That's an odd, <laughs> like, 
even the even the Republican in the room doesn't like <laughs> doesn't like the administration. Um, but uh, no, I I don't I didn't go to my ten year, and I don't know if I would go to my twenty year because, as you know, my my high school experience was split. Right. The first two years were in Denver. The second two years were in Missouri. So I don't really feel close to any sure. really anybody. But I will say that. Uh, my theater teacher at Nixa, who I have a, a very good relationship with and we've kept in touch, um, he's going to be retiring. And so I believe this summer they're putting together a party. So it's like, okay, well, that's different. That's people from the theater department. I do okay. feel closer to that. So I may do that. That's the closest thing to a reunion I would do. And uh, I would see our old friends, Matt Bennett and uh, Jennifer Freeman, oh. whose last name is something else now and I don't remember. But uh, she'll always be Freeman to me. Uh, anyway. All that is to say that The Graduate is 50 years old now, um, and it is uh, available at movie along with Carnal Knowledge, starring Jack Nicholson, Art Garfunkel, Candace Bergen, and Anne Margaret. I actually haven't seen that film, but uh, I did see oh, I did see I've Closer, seen. and I know a lot of people um, compared that with Carnal Knowledge and thought that Carnal Knowledge was much better. And then, Mike, both, yeah. and then Mike Nichols also did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like, what is it with these... Four character. I know that there are more than four characters in Carnal Knowledge, but like he really seems to uh, respond to that dynamic of you know two men, two women, and watching their their uh, tragic comedy uh, unfold. But anyway, Do so you know, you're the Oscar trivia guy. Okay. Um, you know there are three movies where every cast member was nominated for an Oscar. Okay. Well, I'm going to say Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf yeah. is one of them. Um. Let's see. That's, uh, I will say Sleuth. Sleuth is the other one. See, you got it faster than I could because I'm trying to remember what the third one is myself. Okay. The third one, I think I might have a hard time remembering that. Uh, is it Streetcar Named Desire? Uh, no. No. And it's not Secret Honor, but I feel like it is like a... Oh, oh, is it, it is Give Him Hell, Harry? That, that's it. Yes, that's it is it. Give Him Hell, Harry. I knew yeah. it was a one-person thing. Yeah. All right, you got it fasted. Yeah. Yeah. Give Him Hell, Harry is bullshit, by the way. Um, Why? Because Secret Honor, they took a play, a one-man play, uh-huh. and then they adapted it into a film. Give Him Hell, Harry, they, sh- they filmed a theatrical performance. He is up on the stage. And it's like, there's that's a, there's not... There's an audience? There's an audience. That's not a movie. It's a documentary. It's a documentary. Or, or a concert film. Yeah. No, thank you. And, we'll talk f- more about concert films and as much as I like James Whitmore and it, and I've seen give him hell Harry and he's really good in it, but I just thought like, no, that's uh, this feels like they're cheating. No, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. Anyway. So, uh, so the graduate and carnal knowledge are available at movie <laughs> and there is a special offer for listeners of battleship retention. You can try movie free for one month. Just go to movie.com. That's M U B I.com slash battleship to redeem. Now I want to tell you about tweaked audio earbuds. Me, you on everyone listening okay. and everyone within earshot, uh, especially if they got them earbuds in No, actually, especially if they don't have them exactly because y'all are in need of, <laughs> These professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. You won't know what hits you. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, and they're available at a low, low price, these earbuds, over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. 
With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Tyler. Yes. You just got back from Orlando. That's right. I went to the internet. Boy, are your arms tight. Um, (laughs) What did you do there? Uh, Actually, I took a paddle boat. Um, So my legs are really killing me. My arms are fine. Um, So the, uh, yeah, I went to the International Christian Film Festival where I had my table all set up and I uh, gave another talk. This time um, I gave a talk called Everybody Hates Critics. And it was all about uh, the need for more critical thinking and for official critics in the world of Christian film. Um, And people seem to respond pretty well to it uh, for the most part. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay. And, uh, and so, and I, uh, people seemed really excited about my book. Um, I, I had 50 copies shipped to Orlando and as of day three, I was like, I did not leave enough room in my bag to bring more than us, more than 20 back. Uh, thankfully I sold quite a few on that last day. So I sold 35 out of 50, which I, that's not bad. Um, you overshot your mark there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I will say that uh, more than anything, because it's you know I only sold them for ten bucks each, so it wasn't necessarily about the money, especially because I'm that's just going to go into ordering more. But um, but what is interesting is this idea that you know I started more than one lesson to try to get uh, a certain type of Christian movie viewer or a Christian non movie viewer. Um, get uh get them thinking more critically about film and now there are 35 people out there um mm-hmm. who are now reading my reviews and this is and it's the exact audience that I'm going for um so that was very exciting and uh what what did strike me as odd is uh, somebody showed up a guy named Robert who I who said he came specifically for my talk. And I thought that's strange. Uh, my talk last year was popular. And so I thought, okay, well maybe some people, uh, came not merely because the talk sounded interesting, but because they like me turned out this guy is a listener of both battleship pretension and more than one lesson. He is. Hello, Robert. Um, he had some interesting critiques for the show, which I will share off, uh, off mic. (laughs) So, um, Oh, they all have to do with you, David. Um, no, that's not true. I don't but uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but he listens to. So he's a, he's a non Christian, and so I thought, like, oh boy, he is in the midst. He's in the thick of it now. Tell me, I mean, he's an Orlando resident. Yes. Okay. Or around there. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. Orlando or environs. In, oh, indeed. Yes. Uh, so that was so that was one guy. Then I met another listener. Uh, whose name is Paul, a listener of, once again, both Battleship Pretension and More Than One Lesson. Uh, this guy uh, is a Christian. He had a film in the competition. They got second place uh, for the Best Picture Prize, so that's very exciting. Um, Thanks. And, uh, Paul. Yeah. Uh, I believe he was uh, one of the producers on it. So, um, 
And what's interesting is that he is much more right by his own admission. This is his phrasing. He's much more hard right than I am. And, uh, on pretty hard, right. I am in some ways, you know, as I'll, I'll wear a button that says, ask me about uh, the minimum wage and you will get uh, an opinion that could be seen as very hard. Right. Um, but specifically in, in his, uh, in his faith and that sort of thing. And so, uh, he said that he doesn't really like swearing. And I said, and so it's weird. I told, I asked one listener, I said, you're not a Christian. Why are you listening to more than one lesson? And then this other guy, I said, you don't like swearing. Why on earth do you listen to battleship pretension? (laughs) That makes no sense to me at all. And undoubtedly they're both listening now, which is kind of amazing to think about. But, uh, the show is mostly cussing fucking a. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, full cussing. (laughs) I told you that story, right? Uh, a dumb friend of yours, right? When you were kids. Yeah. He had a, a taped off of, turns out it taped off of like HBO or the movie channel. Yeah. But I just saw a VHS tape and it was uh passenger 57. <laughs> you want to watch passenger 57? And I was like, Oh, is that off of TV? Meaning like, is that off of like TBS or whatever? Yeah. And he was like, no full cuss. <laughs> I guess, you know, when you're a kid, like, yeah. Before you discover the concept of nudity, (laughs) you're like cussing is the the most I have. Um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, these two listeners, they, they were, uh, very encouraging and, and it was really awesome to meet them, but here's what I'll say. Um, poor Robert, again, non-Christian in the midst of this environment. And so my talk is over. A guy walks up, guy's very nice. I, I need to emphasize that very friendly guy, very incur- very supportive of me, but we have remarkably different views on, on art and what art can be and what art should be. And, um, and his is rooted very much in his faith. Here's the thing. I think mine is as well, but you know, he's, he actually suggested cause he has a background in production. So he's talking with the, he's been talking with the various, organizations like the Dove Foundation and such. And he said that he suggested that the Christian film world have its own rating system. And I actually loved that idea. I thought that was great. Where like because in my view it's like, yeah, all right, this idea that because right now there's just there's the Dove seal which says it's fine for all for the whole family oh. and it's Christian in nature or there isn't that. And I thought wouldn't it be interesting if there's something for a Christian grown-ups who are even if they're not fine with swearing, they can live with it because they're grown-ups and they have. Um probably. And so uh so that's so I was actually really excited at the notion. And then I discovered that yeah, that's uh, not really what he had in mind. Um you know, because in his view, so I was like, well, I don't even know what you're looking for because he thought like there there should be some films that uh DNQ, they do not qualify like to even be considered for this rating system. And so I was just like, well, what's the like what? And he said, well, he goes, I see absolutely no reason to ever like use the Lord's name in vain. And I remember thinking like, okay, that uh, fair enough. You mean personally or like in a movie? Cause personally, yeah, sure. I get what you're saying in a movie though. It's not necessary to do anything, but if you're trying to <laughs> reflect reality and I said, you know, Oh my God is a very common phrase. Uh, so what do you, 
going to do? And then we take a, a, a hard right turn, not the way Paul is talking about. Um, maybe yeah, a left turn. Sit down, Paul. Yeah, easy there. This isn't about you. Easy, big fella. <laughs> um, but uh, the guy says, so I said, you know, if you're going to try and reflect reality, and then he says, well, movies aren't reality. I said, well, no, I understand what you're saying. Of course, they're not reality. We're not talking about documentaries here. But if you want to try and 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 reflect the reality that we live in, and he said, yeah, but movies aren't reality. Why can't they just be the reality that that reflect the 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 philosophy of the of the director? And I and so I said, so uh, wait a minute. So are you talking about like? you're a Christian. So you have an idea about how people be, will should behave. And so you would make a movie in which everybody behaves that way. And I said, like, so where's the character arc? Mm-hmm. Where is the conflict? Where is anything that makes a movie? If everybody's already living in this Christian utopia. Also kind of, who's the audience? That's a good question too. And so anyway, so he and I went back and forth and I'll say this, that he was never insulting a big, a big problem that I have with the, the world of Christian film is that, you know, he clearly has a very specific conviction about the art that he watches and the art that he wants to make. And I don't share it. And he does not require that I share it. That's a big thing. And that in itself is like a huge step forward. So I'm not going to, I don't want to bash this guy that much because he came to my talk, he bought a book and he came and talked to me. So this guy's ace is in my book. Yeah. He's just wrong about things. He's wrong about a lot of things. And so, <laughs> um, but at one point I had to, and you know what, when other people came up to the table, he said, Hey, you know, uh, you talk to them, you know, you gotta sell your books and stuff. So I did. And then he started talking with poor Robert, um, the non-Christian. Uh-huh. And I picked up a couple of the, a couple of things here and there of what he was saying to Robert and what Robert was, God help him trying to say back. Um, and I, it, I was just like, this guy does not know he's talking to a non-Christian. So Robert wasn't volunteering that information. He was like Matthew Perry's first episode of the West wing. <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> Boy, that's a, I have not thought about that in a while, but uh, I no, think about not. that as an analogy. Anytime there's like <laughs> one person who's different from everyone around them, but isn't volunteering that information. That's yeah. always the analogy I come up with. For those who don't know, there's an episode of the West wing. Matthew Perry was on two or three episodes in season four. Um, I felt like he was on more than that, but I guess you're right. It was only on a hand, a handful. Uh, yeah. But his, his first one, he's interviewing for a job with Josh Lyman played by mm-hmm. Bradley Whitford. Uh, and Matthew Perry's character eventually is, is revealed is a Republican. Obviously yeah. this is a democratic white house. And, um, so that's why I was making that analogy. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I absolutely volunteered at school because it's just like, all right, well here, mostly cause here's where I'm coming from right. and it's going to probably color the way I approach film and discussion of sociopolitical things anyway. Um, so yeah, no, to my knowledge, Robert was not uh, volunteering that to people. So anyway, so the guy eventually leaves. Uh, and so I talk with Robert and ultimately I say, Robert, you, you are in an odd position here because unlike any, any other listener that I know, you are in the rare position of actually getting to see the human embodiment of why I started more than one lesson. <laughs> That's very exciting for you. And he said, yeah, that guy, boy, he has some opinions. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, uh, so you get a, a handful of people like that. I had a few more, um, who, uh, have you encountered this, uh, in, in your own way? And this is going to make me sound really shitty and egotistical. I don't okay. put myself out there as someone that knows everything. Oh, of course. Um, I mean, I obviously don't do that. You listen to the movie journal. Indeed. Where <laughs> right. Every week I'm mentioning multiple classic films that I'm seeing right. for the first time. 
And so, um, but there are people, this is going to sound mean. Okay. I can't help it. Okay. Anyway, there are people that will come, they, they come to your, they come to my talk and they see in me a possible kindred spirit. And so they come up and, and clearly they, they feel like they are also a critical thinker and they, they see someone that they feel like, Oh, finally I can talk to this person and they don't know anything. And, and I'm sure and, and, and it's, but they're on the path. They're on the path, but I feel like and it's not like you're at the end of the path. You just happen to be a little further along than they are. Right. That's right. fine. But I do think there has to be a certain degree of self-awareness. But uh, at what point as a, not just a Christian cinephile, what point as a cinephile, did you have that self-awareness? Um, I think, I think I'm still learning humility. Like, yeah. I guess probably high school is like, honestly, college, probably first year of college. Um, but I went to film, but we went to film school, yeah, yeah. not to imply that film school like puts you above, but when you're, when you're right in the middle of film, you realize, wow, there's a lot of shit I haven't seen. Um, but it's, and that's, right. so I, so I felt bad saying that, but it's, there's an element of a person trying to, and I understand where it comes from, like trying to ingratiate themselves, uh, themselves to you. And so they will say something like, you know, uh, these other people, you know, as a, like, like you're part, like you're on the same team, which I'm perfectly fine to, to think that, but then the person will often, uh, disagree with me a lot on, on the, the deeper th- philosophies that I have about art and they don't have that. And so, um, so I didn't, so I, I wound up just feeling embarrassed, uh, both for them and for me, um, because I thought like more than anything, it was just like, you can just talk to me like a person. It's fine. Like you don't have to try to get me on your side. I'm already on your, okay. you, you bought my book. I'm on your side. You should um, hand them a red rubber ball to play with. Got <laughs> oh, away from you. Did it? <laughs> I was just thinking of that episode <laughs> the other day. Oh, well you keep at it. Um, yeah, <laughs> just, Oh boy. Anyway, so that sounds really, so that sounded really shitty and condescending. It's not so much that it's more just, they were just trying so hard. And if only they knew who they were dealing with, which is you don't need to try hard with me um, <laughs> because I'm deeply aware of uh, how wrong I am about things. But, uh, but I did get to show clips in my talk from, I showed a clip from you can count on me. I showed a clip from faces and then kind of some standard ones like the apostle man for all seasons, believe me and hand and some other stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so by and large, it was a really great experience and, uh, there are things that I actually can't really talk about, but there are some low level industry things that are coming You're about. You're saying what happens at the international Christian film festival stays at the international Christian film festival. Is that the point you're trying to, is that you're trying to get at here? Yes. <laughs> What I was going to say is that, uh, that there are some, there are some industry developments that actually excite me a lot and that I will get to play a very, uh, a small role in, which uh, is also exciting. Um, I feel like that's kind of, let me ask you this. Is that kind of the, the dream of the film critic that they actually get to consult on something and so start to shape something into what they want it to be or what they think it should be? I think it differed. I think I've come to learn that there are critics who view their own job differently than I view being sure. a critic. Cause that is not an interest of mine. I okay. am not interested in weighing in on something before it exists to mm-hmm. me. Uh, that's, that's the, that's my position, uh, as, as a critic is to, is to weigh in after when, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't have any interest. Yeah, I don't. Uh, it's not the same as being in production or anything like that. But it's it has it more has to do with like, well, I've seen what the industry is, mm-hmm. and there are people that want to go in a different direction, and and so I'm not the person standing on the outside saying like, please, we need to be better. I'm someone that someone says, what do you put your money where your mouth is? Exactly. Or you're looking for the opportunity to do exactly. So. Or more specifically, they're put they're they're putting money where my mouth is, which I like a lot. Um, I'm eating money is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so at the risk of, of sounding like I came away from this film festival, uh, thinking I'm like real hot shit. Sorry, uh, Paul. Um, the, uh, it was a very exciting and a very encouraging experience all around. And, uh, I hope I get to go next year. There's a possibility that I won't just based on, family stuff and obligations yeah. but uh but yeah i i really enjoyed it um honest question i don't mean this snarky because it might fine. sound snarky how international is the international christian film festival uh pretty in terms of the films playing there uh there are in the past there's been like australians okay. uh, i met a guy named pavel who is polish he is from Poland, mm. and he had a documentary there in uh, Polish. Uh, oh, uh, Japan. There's also uh, oh, cool. a big, uh, uh, more so last year than this year, but there were you know some Japanese documentaries. Um, and so there, it does seem to be branching out a little bit, okay. um, which is very exciting. So, All right. You know what else is exciting? What's that? The things that are to look at and read on the website. Okay. Uh, you got, Give me some examples, Dave. Well, you got Scott reviewing Alien Covenant. Okay. Um. Uh, it seems like the early word on alien covenant or the word on alien covenant is, uh, pretty good or it's better than Prometheus. Yeah. It's what I've heard is that like, well, it's better than Prometheus, but it's better by being just another alien movie. Okay. And that's, uh, not that encouraging to me. Um, you can, uh, you can win a copy of Flickr Alley's early woman filmmakers, Blu-ray or DVD set. Um, by, um, you gotta comment on the post and fill out a form. All right. <laughs> but, uh, that's an exciting thing that I'm excited about. Uh, double feature looked at the double feature podcast. That's Eric and Michael looked at Billy Jack and Aguirre, the wrath of God. Sarah is still making her way through the, uh, top 100. She looked at, uh, treasure of the Sierra Madre and some others, uh, sequel cast two looked at the Rocky horror picture show TV. They're doing some fun stuff now that they're back. <laughs> Your face indicated you did not think it was fun. No, I do. I do think it's it's fun. Yeah. Um, but I mean, a lot of, like they're doing a lot of direct to video sequels, and this is no. like a TV version. It's it's fun. Um, uh, a musical no- notation. West looked at the music of uh, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita and Doctor Strangelove. Um, Alex wrote about one of my uh, I don't know favorite all time favorite movies, but a movie I love, uh, A Matter of Life and Death. Mm-hmm. His Criterion Prediction column. That's probably a pretty good prediction, I would say. By um, the way. Yeah, you know, I feel like, uh, and then there's other stuff too. I reviewed Paris Can Wait, and uh, Aaron's got the this week's Chicago report. But I want to talk about Alex's Criterion Prediction column because I feel like some people are, are like might approach it in a way that I don't think is what Alex is approaching it for. Okay. Like, I don't think Alex is trying to be cunning. Like, I don't think he's going for like right. the outside shot and trying to be like, so he'd so that in two months he could be like, called it or whatever. Yeah, you know what no, I mean? No. Like, I think he's going for stuff that actually has a good chance of, of yeah. being the criterion, uh, criterion collection. And then he's writing 
in-depth critiques of those movies. Yes. And so that's, what's interesting is like, these are movies that are, that actually are likely. These aren't long shots. They're not, uh, surprises. Yeah, they're not he's, he's not making the case for dirty work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but on to, the other hand, he says like the limey and I feel like that, that fits, right. I think. Yeah. Um, and so, and then he's, he's not just, it's not just a list of things. Like he's actually critiquing yeah. the films and talking about why they would be good. Like it's, it's not about trying to surprise you. I don't think it's, right. it's about, uh, offering, um, a sort of, uh, pre, uh, uh, an early look yeah. at something that's probably going to be in the collection. I wanted to say that because, because of one thing one person said to me once. I was going to say, is this like a, is this a big, uh, big complaint? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's because of one thing one person said to me once. Okay. Um, but, um, oh, and they even said it to you. They didn't post it somewhere. Yes. Okay. To me. Um, but, um, I forgot what I was going to say. It was something about something. I'll tell you that much. Boy. Uh, let's get into it. Shall we? Indeed. Let's talk it. Okay. So sorry. I talked so long, everybody. Oh, no one cares. Um, I mean, Robert and Paul loved it. Um, did they, did I make them sound okay? They, yeah, they, they both came off great. Okay. You better hope this other guy didn't start listening or your adoring fans. <laughs> you better hope your adoring fans aren't listening. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, you know what is funny though is, so you have a persona on the show, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. As do I. Um, and when I give my talks, I don't really go into that persona, but it's weird how much I, how quickly I can go into that if I feel vulnerable. And so there was a, a everything was running late, like 20 minutes late. And so I didn't get to have like a tech uh, run through for my clips or anything like that. And so, uh, oh. so already I'm like apologizing to people for being so late and all that. Um, and then as I'm explaining, like, okay, so I'm going to be talking, then every once in a while I'll get, we're going to be showing a clip. And I start to say that, and one of the clips starts playing. And the tech guy is right over here. He's a super nice guy named Dean. And, um, and so it just starts playing. And I found myself instinctively going into, um, going into the, the Tyler Smith character uh-huh. of just being really... Uh, gregarious. Uh-huh. And so I just, so I just like put my head down and just kind of set my jaw and just look straight ahead while the clip <laughs> plays for the next seven minutes. People are laughing. And then I said what I was going to say, like I, I found myself in the midst of the persona before I even realized it. I said, what I was going to say is that we will be playing clips when I say we should. <laughs> I don't mean to micromanage the tech staff. And, you know, and people were laughing. And thankfully, the tech staff was uh, this guy. Dean was laughing as well. But it was just a weird thing because, like, I, I want to be me there. But if things even start to go a little bit wrong, I jump into this shitty thing uh, pretty fast. Uh, well, let's, um, sorry, let's jump into this shitty thing pretty fast. (laughs) (laughs) Too late for that. Uh, for those who, uh, uh, for our more astute listeners may have noticed the, uh, the number every, every, uh, you know, main, uh, you know, original recipe episode of Battleship Mm. Tension has a number. Um, 
that signifies the number of weeks we've been doing the show. And uh, astute listeners have probably caught on by this point that anytime that number ends in a zero and yet is not divisible by 50, um, that we're doing something a little bit special. <laughs> um, and that is we're doing a profile episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's enough fucking around for the moment because this is a sad profile yeah uh because we have to just like our last profile um someone who has um uh, suddenly passed away someone who uh, made a lot of work important to us and i think that's as we get older you and i like you know it's not like the you know the old uh lions who are gonna be passing away it's the people that we grew up watching their stuff you know yeah um it's going to be uh I'm going to say the next seven years are going to be pretty rough. Know, we're going to uh, get a lot of profile episodes out of it. No question. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that used to be our rule is that uh, the people we profile could not be alive. Yeah. Uh, and then we just started going with people that were maybe towards the end of their career. And even then, we haven't always done that. We did Zack Snyder before he made Man of Steel. We, made, we did uh, Guillermo del Toro, you know, filmmakers that are still... Uh, doing stuff. We did Christopher Nolan at some point. Um, I don't remember like yeah. any of these. Yeah, we did weird. it because they, they had enough of a career right. and they were at a certain point in their career that we felt like, let's look back. Okay, uh, before we look ahead. But now, yeah, with with where we are age-wise and where a lot of the people we grew up with are age-wise, then yeah, I think we're going to wind up almost by default uh, returning back to our, our initial yeah. plan. Yeah, it'll be very sad. Um, so, uh, in case you haven't noticed um, from the description, we are talking about Jonathan Demme, mm-hmm. uh, who died what um, two, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, now I think. Uh, and I've been a big fan for a long time. I discovered um, a lot of his movies when I was in high school, um, which is the same. I think I talked about this. We talked about him when when he died, and I talked about how um, I was getting into more seriously into movies at the same time that I was getting into the talking heads, one of my top five favorite bands of all time. Right. And so, um, I saw stop making sense. And I used to, uh, you know, I would read about, I don't really do this as much as much anymore, but I would read about the bands that I was into. I think that's something you do. Um, I wonder if this is already a tangent, but I do wonder, like, I feel like, before I, you know, I had the internet and Napster and you know everything like that. You only had the CDs that you had, and so you listened to them a lot. And you also like read all the liner notes and everything yeah. because you, you know, who knows when you're going to get something else and you're getting physical copies. I wonder if like young budding rock fans or whatever are doing that, you know, or how they're getting that information. But anyway, like I remember reading in the. Um, uh, talking heads like two disc retrospective popular favorites um you know some recollections about making stop making sense um that involved jonathan demi uh, and so uh, i i feel like i've uh jonathan De- I, I guess there are certain directors whose names you know even if you're not really like a movie person mm-hmm. you know you know steven spielberg and alfred, alfred hitchcock or whatever but jonathan demi is one of the first like directors that i probably knew by name at a time that i was starting to learn directors names hmm. you know what i mean uh, yeah i'm trying to think of that applies to me as well i think i didn't really start paying attention to him until i got older because i think you know the film that is probably most associated with him is silence of the lambs which i didn't see until 
I mean, college, you know, which is pretty rare for, for me. Um, you know, it was a, th- yeah. a thriller from the 1990s that, that is definitely a high school watch for me, but I, I didn't get to Silence of the Lambs for a while. I think the first film of his that I watched was Philadelphia. And even then I was thinking about it primarily in terms of the acting. Um, so I think sure. he was not a director that I thought of certainly by name until, you know, until I was probably 21, 22. Um, so now we're not going to, to be talking, neither of us has really seen his Roger Corman stuff. So we're not talking about Caged right. Heat or, or Crazy Mama. Right. And then I told, I said, you know, when we were going to do this profile, I said I was going to watch Melvin and Howard. Apparently I had to watch Sammy the Way Out Seal instead. Um, so I didn't watch Melvin and Howard. Oh, did he direct that? <laughs> I know it was split into two. Did he direct one of them? <laughs> um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is Stop Making Sense. Now, have you seen it at this point? I have not. Um, so uh, it is... It is one of the two movies that generally gets talked about as the great concert films of all time. Right. The other one being The Last Waltz. Um, hmm. uh, I hear I hear Gimme Shelter in that conversation as oh, well. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and I feel like Woodstock actually winds up being something else. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know that people like... I mean, Woodstock is like a document of the time, but do people talk about Woodstock as a good movie? Yeah, I think so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I've never seen it. Uh, in fact, I haven't seen most of these. Um but I can tell you that I'm pretty sure stop making sense is better than the last waltz. I love Martin Scorsese and everything, but the difference is that the talking heads are good and the band is boring. (laughs) Um, uh, I I have like the last waltz, like uh, I have it downloaded, like the, the full like concert album. And I just listened to the stuff that has the guests, like, you know, oh, Neil Young came on and played some Neil Young songs yeah. and the band was just like their name. They were just a backing band. That's what they were good at. Um, not a big fan of the band. Uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah. We're here to talk about Stumming Sense, which is, I think, the greatest concert film. But it's also the uh, it's it's unique in that most concert films are documents of a concert that actually happened. Like mm-hmm. this concert was going to happen, whether the cameras are there or not. Right. Whereas Stop Making Sense they did they did it in like a on a sound stage they did two shows they i mean they invited the you know they sold tickets and everything and you could go and see it but it was a the concert only existed for the movie mm-hmm. uh and um so it was conceived from the beginning as a movie not a document of a concert you right. know what i mean yeah um and that shows it's it's um, perfectly choreographed and staged and the, you know, down to like the, the, the color palette and the, and the lighting and also the, um, rather odd choice, but I think really rewarding choice to not show the audience even once until the final song. Hmm. Um, and then you get to like be down in the audience when they play cross-eyed and painless, which is when, um, when I heard that Jonathan Demi died, the first thing I wanted to do was go to YouTube and watch the cross-eyed and painless, the, the final song from, hmm. Uh, from from Stop Making Sense because it's so joyful and it's like at the end of everything and everyone's celebrating and everyone clearly had a great time just like you did. It's like, um, I guess it kind of feels like being in a movie in the sense that like when you watch a movie, you might be with your friends, but you're not right. talking during the movie unless you're an asshole. You know, you're, you're just enjoying the movie and then you come out and the movie's over and maybe while the credits are rolling, you know, I have mixed feelings on, uh, on that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you just experience the thing together and then you get to talk 
at the end you get to celebrate how great it was and that's how the cross-eyed and painless uh section of stop making sense always felt to me it's like i've been watching a movie with this audience that i haven't seen once but i've been able to hear the entire time and now at the end we get to jump around and like look at each other and be like wasn't that great isn't this still great Hmm. uh it's it's very it's very joyful um the the movie as a whole the is is full of um fun takes uh, uh fun stagings i'm sure you've seen the big suit oh yeah um uh there's also i mean the um uh the the opening is is fantastic because it comes out like it, david Byrne just comes out with his guitar and a boombox and hits play and the boombox just has like the percussion percussion sounds on it and yeah. he does psycho killer and then the next song another band member comes out and they do it together. That's and then the, it's like the, the band gets added over, over time. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful movie. And now I really, really want to watch it again. Um, but moving forward, he did a bunch of music videos. Um, and a lot of people after he died, shared the, the new order of the perfect kiss video, um, which I didn't watch. Um, but the next one for me is something wild, which I probably also saw in high school. Now, what year is that? That's 86. Okay. Uh, you have one after that, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so 1986 is, um, uh, something wild. And that's a movie, uh, again, I'm going to kind of repeat myself from what we said, uh, in the intro a couple weeks ago when, when he had first, um, passed away. Um, but you know, there were, there were certain movies. It's almost, it's, uh, it's it's funny to me that I lived, I went from St. Louis, I lived in Chicago and then Los Angeles, the second and third biggest cities in the country. But if you had asked me at the time, yeah, I probably would have said like, I have to live in New York because everything that I was into was like from the mid seventies to mid eighties, like New York city, including the talking heads, you know, and the, and the Ramones and Blondie and the whole Lower East Side uh, scene. And then the movies I, I liked were um, were like, uh, I like Desperately Seeking Susan, which I still like uh, a lot. Um, that was a big movie for me. And Something Wild was another that was like, look at like what, you know, the city seemed, I, I just, the city beckoned me. And I got, I, I, I got my fix in Chicago. Chicago is, yeah. uh, as a, as a city day to day is not that dissimilar from New York city, you know, mm-hmm. in that it's, uh, it's the same kind of urban largely, you know, right. it's, and it's bustling and you're walking everywhere and you're taking public transit and you're seeing, you're coming, you know, you're shoulder to shoulder with all different kinds of people all the time. Uh, and that was what was so exciting to me. Uh, and something wild is one of the movies, um, that, uh, that made me feel that way about like, I have to go live in the city. um, uh, even though the, the, the second half like kind of confirms my other, like my prejudice, my anti-city prejudices, you know, when they leave the city, that's when it turns from this sort of like, uh, you know, fun, like, you know, odd, odd couple on the run comedy into like a thriller with, you know, Ray Liotta, a super threatening bad guy. Yeah. Um, and, and that just, that confirmed me. That's like, yep, you got it. Like there's weirdos out there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to stay in the city where there's the right kind of weirdos. It's the weird loner weirdos that you got to watch out for out in the, out in the rural areas. Uh, that's what really scares me somehow. Um, there are loners in the city. Uh, I know that now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although I am still 
they're still like, I still think of them as my kind of loners. <laughs> I guess that's, there's a certain, you know, now that I think about it. Yeah. If you're, if you're a loner in, in the rural area, then, you know, you live in a house that maybe your parents owned before you murdered them. Right. Whereas if you're a loner in <laughs> made the made so far out of their bones, right? obviously, um, as one would do in that situation, you want to be close to them. Um, but if you're a loner in the city, like, well, you you still need to be functional to a point. Like you still got to be able to pay your rent. You still need to like <laughs> write a check to your landlord or whatever. And so you still, you're still operating on a certain human level that, uh, Ed Gein did not need yeah. to. So I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm, yeah. I guess I'm more of an H.H. H. Holmes serial killer. Sure. Than an exactly. <laughs> oh, he was, he was I, very social. Yeah, I, I'm your modern urbane social killer. <laughs> so, so, so uh, serial killers, I meant to say, fucked up that joke, didn't I? That's fine. Um, uh, but yeah, um, you didn't get a chance, unfortunately, to see uh, something wild um, because I think you'd, you'd, you'd dig it the most. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, I've heard that Ray Liotta especially I would enjoy. Yeah, uh, And also you get... Um, uh, for, for, for film nerds, you get fun cameos by other directors. Mm. Uh, John Waters, I think plays a used car salesman. That's, um, yeah, John, almost a little too obvious. <laughs> John sales plays, I think a motorcycle cop. Okay. Um, which is a little less obvious casting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a, there's a couple of, a couple of those in there. Uh, so it's, it's a really, really cool, uh, and fun, uh, movie. And it, even, even when it's, not fun when it's dark and violent. Yeah. Uh, it still, um, feels full of life. I think that's something that is true in a lot of his movies. You pointed at me. I hit on something. Yep. That is, uh, as I was looking at the, the list of films that I, of his, that I have seen full of life, vibrant, mm-hmm. tense, uh, constantly moving and shifting is, is the thing that I found myself thinking for, almost all of them. Like, uh, there's, you, I don't think you can watch one of his films passively. Um, he will pull you in no matter what genre he's working in, no matter what time period he's working in. Uh, even if he could be making a narrative film or a documentary, like he will, he could be making uh, a, do, uh, um, a concert film featuring one man acting and just delivering monologues as is the case with swimming to Cambodia, which have have you seen that? I never have. No, it's a Spalding gray, you know, concert film, whatever you want to call it, a performance, but it's a stage performance. Yeah. Um, and I saw like give him hell Harry, not unlike that Spalding gray, not nominated for an Oscar though, which is probably a good thing. Um, so I saw this in high school, um, because we were studying monologues and how to deliver monologues. And, uh, you know, so obviously I'm focusing on Spalding Gray himself. Uh, but the way that it is shot, it is not boring. It is not passive. It just, when you think about one person on a stage, you feel like the camera will probably pull back to show that he's on a stage or it'll be way too close. Um, but I recall, and again, I haven't seen this since since high school. But I remember even in the moment uh, thinking that uh, that the director—I probably wouldn't have put it this way—but mm-hmm. that the director was active and was actively interested in what was being said and how it was being said, um, and and was also utilizing editing techniques. Uh, 
sometimes a quick cut um, to to play up the emotion of the the story that Spalding Gray is t- is telling. And so, um, so I don't have much else to say except that even in this. I mean, you know, certainly when it's just one person talking, then the director might feel like they really need to start uh, uh, applying their their craft and such. But um, but it's it's a common thing that one would find in in his films is just a guy who is a director that is always present emotionally and then will try to direct to that emotion so that you, the viewer, are always invested um, and I think honestly, looking at the list of films of his that I have seen, I feel like that goes for, uh, every film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think of him as an auteur. Um, and I probably still don't honestly, but you know, somebody, somebody creating a certain vibe, um, and, and create and having a tone of, of, you know, be of vibrance and vitality, you know, consistently from one movie to the other, regardless of genre. I mean, I guess that's an, uh, a tourist, uh, mm-hmm. uh, quality. Yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, that's why it's fun to talk about something like the silence of the lambs, which given what we've talked about so far feels like a departure. Yeah. But also is, you know, we mentioned he started working with Roger Corman and silence of the lambs, even though it is, you know, an Oscar winning film, it's also a pulpy film. Oh yeah. And uh, Roger Corman is in it as well. He's uh he is in it for one scene, I believe. Uh, who is he? Uh, I think he might be the FBI director. Okay. Um, but he's, you know, a guy in a suit behind a desk. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I, I probably saw sound slams. I probably saw it in high school. I know I wanted to see it for a long time because when it first came out, I was not allowed to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Full cussing. Yeah. <laughs> that might be from the movie journal. I don't remember now. Uh, yeah, I don't remember either. Um, anyway, uh, but um, I watched it again uh, within the past uh, few years, um, and it does still feel like Jonathan Demi to me in the sense that I think there's a type of director that I think has flourished in recent years. Okay. And I'm not saying these are bad directors. I like a lot of their stuff, but I think if sounds and lambs were to be made now, it would probably be made by a David Fincher or a Denis Villeneuve type, right? Yes. Someone who is meticulous and who has a, uh, directs with an iron fist type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is not, again, I like movies by both of these people. Um, this is not a, a, a complaint. Um, but I do feel like we, it's become more rare for major studio releases to feel handmade anymore. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, you get I think stuff so, like but, the yeah. big short feels very handmade, um, okay. to just leaving to my, you know what I mean? But, um, I, I guess I feel like this would be, if it were made now, it would be treated with, I think probably more, it would be probably more hands-on from the studio. Yes. Um, and it would be entrusted with a director that they know is going to, 
make it look like a capital M movie. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Where, I see what you mean. Yes. Whereas this still has that. It still has personal touches to it. Again, not, which is not to say that David Fincher doesn't have personal touches. He clearly does. Right. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a coldness to his movies that I think works for the movies he's, he's yeah. telling. But, um, um, Jodie Foster in Silence of the Limbs is never a piece of the production design, the set design. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's still okay. a movie about her first. So let's let's look at the directors that you've mentioned. So okay, let's talk about Silence of the Lambs, Seven, and Prisoners. Okay. Okay. To just yeah. take similar types of movies, you know. Um, Seven is pretty messy, but it is very meticulous in a number of ways, and both that and Prisoners seem to. And maybe it's because Silence of the Lambs exists at all, but uh, they seem to think, and I would agree, that they are very important. Um, and they're exploring something that is very important. And I don't want to take anything away from those films, especially Seven. Um, but there is, I think there is a certain Roger Corman mentality, not in the cheapness of, of Silence of the Lambs, but this this feeling of, you know, it didn't know it was a prestige picture. Right. Yeah. It's just a fun thriller. It's just a, you know, you say like capital M movie. I mean, it's just a movie, right? You know, it's got, we're going to have like really great acting and stuff, but honestly, like, come on, this guy, where's this other guy's face? (laughs) You know, that's not a thing we do when we're trying to win Oscars. It is maybe one of the least Oscar bait films uh, that has ever won best picture, much less uh, director, actress, uh, actor and screenplay. Um, I want to talk about the cinematography um, because then this is going to make me sound like an old. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were some stills released this week from Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. And a common uh, uh, comment, I guess, that I saw on Twitter, you know, screen capping these, these, these stills from Blade Runner 2049, people saying, Roger Deakins might finally get that Oscar, you know? Like, yeah. And when I look at those, I see, I don't, I guess this, again, this makes me sound like a cranky old man. I don't see cinematography. I see color timing. I see stuff that's done in post. Right. Um, and I guess that is part of the process and the cinematographer oversees that. Sure. And so it is, I absolutely like Roger Deakins should absolutely win an Oscar for that. But there's a part of, when I look at tech Fujimoto's work in the silence of the lambs, um, it's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's, you know, and it's something that Roger Deakins can, you know, it reminds me of Roger Deakins work in no country for old men uh, sure. more where it's like, there's often a feeling where you kind of feel like you need to blink. Like it's almost not out of folk, but it's almost hazy, but it's also, but the, the colors are and the, yeah. and the, and the framing is crisp. And yet there's this, like you've just woken up type of type of feeling to where like you're not quite sure what you're looking at a lot of the time. You know, Tech Fujimoto did the same thing in signs, by the way, he's Tech Fujimoto is one of my favorite uh, DPs of all time. And signs looks pretty great too. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a way that let me, uh, I'll put it out. I'll put it this way. And I don't mean to, to bash other filmmakers, but uh, I think it's, it's important to, to draw a distinction between them. Um, when I look at Denis Villeneuve, and I like him more than you do, um, I think Arrival is by far his best film. Um, and when I look at the trailer for 
Blade Runner. Now, admittedly, the first Blade Runner still also had this meditative tone while it's showing these striking visuals. So, all right, it's trying to do that. But when I look at a film by Denis Villeneuve, and let's go with Fincher as well, or let's say a Stanley Kubrick to go a little bit back. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm looking at art that I can't touch. Like I'm at a, I'm, I'm looking at a painting and yeah. there's a velvet rope and I'm supposed to stand at a distance and marvel at it. When I think of a, of any Jonathan Demi film, any, certainly any movie that's on my list here, I get the feeling of a guy who does not have that level of pretension. He's like, no, no, come on. It's fine. You can interact with it. It's, it's no problem. It's yeah, not, you're not going to break it. That's, that's true. I don't think one of those things is necessarily worse than the other. I, no, not sometimes at all. I like the right. art on the wall type of thing, yeah. but yeah, that's absolutely true is you feel like you could stand in these movies. Yeah. And even though, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a, a specific choice in art direction in silence of the lambs. You know, the fact that, uh, Lecter exists in a, essentially a, a medieval dungeon, yeah. uh, which I gotta say is probably not great for a person's mental health. Um, but, uh, you know, in my, in my film history class, uh, when I was giving a, a lecture on mise-en-scene, I chose a frame from Silence of the Lambs of Lecter when we first see him. So he's standing in the middle of his cell, and I just said to the kids, like, all right, what do you, what do you see, mm-hmm. and what can we infer from it? You know, and so they start talking about like how he's dressed, how he's standing, the po- the his pictures on the wall, uh, and that sort of thing. It's like, okay, but wh- what are you not seeing? And it took someone a while to say, oh, bars, we're not seeing any bars. And it's like, right, that is a visual choice. And that is a choice that for a number of reasons. One, it's practical is you don't want bars in the frame uh, blocking the actor's faces. But also it's a clear differentiation between Lecter and the other prisoners. He's not like them. But it's also even though you consciously are aware that there is glass in between uh, Lecter and uh, Starling. Mm hmm. You don't see it. So it is It is as though they are occupying the same space. Whereas with MIGs, you know that they're not. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, there's just so many great choices. that, And it's and the fact that it is so, there are so many clear decisions being made there that make so much sense artistically. And yet it still feels like, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and keep coming up with different (laughs) metaphors here, but there's still this Roger Corman attitude of like, Hey everybody, let's make a movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Let's put on a show. Um, now to move on, we should move on to Philadelphia. Although I have to say it's been a long time since I've seen Philadelphia, probably since college for me. Um, yeah, that might be, that might be true too. Um, Oh, I mean college now I saw it last week. (laughs) Oh, uh, I don't expect you to remember that. Um, but I, I, I mean, I've always liked the movie. It's just, it has been a very long time. <laughs> I yeah. don't really know what to say. Well, one thing that I do know is that, uh, is one of the reasons that he made Philadelphia, um, was because of silence of the lambs. You might oh, recall I've heard this. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is, uh, Jonathan Demi, Ted Levine. Uh, they have all said that this is pretty much true that, uh, that Demi got a lot of uh, a lot of flack from the the gay community mm-hmm. um, with Silence of the Lambs because they thought that uh, Jamie Gum was coded as gay. Now, both Jonathan Demi and Ted Levine said, "Like, well, we were playing him as not a human, uh, who and traditional sexuality doesn't really apply. Um, but if that's how you took it, then 
you know, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. And I feel like Jonathan Demi, he could have said like, well, that's not how I meant it. I'll see you later. But no, he, he wanted to be sensitive. And so not unlike DW Griffith making intolerance, uh, to, to sort of counter, um, claims of racism, racism, even at the time, uh, Jonathan Demi makes Philadelphia. Um, and someone might say that like, Oh, so it's a knee jerk thing. It's like, no, I think it shows a genuine sensitivity. He wasn't assigned to make Philadelphia. He chose to, because he suddenly realized, Oh, I guess, I guess I wasn't aware of something and that's on me. And so he makes this film that I think is actually very sensitive. And I think it's, I think you have a very active camera and one that definitely takes its, its cues from the emotion of the the characters. Obviously there's the big opera scene where Tom Hanks is talking about uh, this opera that he's listening to and the camera, the way it moves and the, and the way that it gets closer to him and it, the camera the camera movement itself becomes operatic. Um, even though he, even though Tom Hanks is only listening to it on a stereo. Um, but I also think (laughs) Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks got the Oscar and, and he got all the, all the acting prestige from that film. But I think Denzel Washington is doing wonderful work because he is us. Honestly, he's this straight guy who, doesn't really know a lot of gay people and doesn't think he has any kind of prejudice until here he is talking to a gay guy who is HIV positive at a mm-hmm. time when people weren't a hundred percent sure what that might entail for them. Yeah. And so there's a, and then there's that scene and this speaks to what I was going to say again, uh, what I was going to say about uh, Jonathan Demi as a director and that he's just very present in the moment. And that scene where Denzel Washington is, is in a, a convenience store and somebody comes up to him and, and seems to suggest that he is gay and that's why he's defending this man. And just in his knee jerk reaction to that is very, very violent in a lot of ways. And there's a real, are you there mm. quality in the midst of a film that I feel like doesn't usually have that there's a, there's a sheen to Philadelphia. So, but in, in scenes like that, where there's a real rawness, I mm-hmm. feel like Demi really steers into it. Um, you know, if I remember correctly, it was in, in Tom Hanks second Oscar speech, like, uh, maybe it was the Philadelphia one, but I think it I was assume the, it was Philadelphia, but, it, but the way he phrased he said to Denzel Washington that I steal from you every day. Mm. And I feel like he was saying a year later, I'm like, that's, that's how it read my mind that mm. it was a year later. And he was saying a year later, I'm still, you know, <laughs> doing things I learned from you. Gosh, but, I don't know. Um, I was a little kid. Who cares? Yeah. Oscars are dumb. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. That took a turn. But I will say, uh, I'll just say the, um, yeah, I need to watch Philadelphia again. It's been a long time. But one of the main things I remember from Philadelphia uh, and from it coming out at the time is the Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen song, Streets of Philadelphia, that yeah. was made for the movie and was a, a, a single. Um, and it won Best Song that year. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, just wanted to keep keep this in the conversation, the musicality. Music is always very important oh, sure. in Jonathan Demme's uh, films. So let's... I think we should jump ahead to Beloved, right? That's next? Yeah, that's next for me. Um, Which I only saw fairly recently. Yeah, and I haven't seen it in a while, but I watched a lot of the time because I'm realizing that was probably because, like I said before, Jonathan Demme was one of the first directors I knew by name. Beloved would have been the first movie that came out, like it was in, the, the, in yeah, theaters probably. after I learned his name. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
uh, I mean, I guess there was there was Storefront Hitchcock, which is his Robin Hitchcock documentary, but I did, I've never seen that. Um, right. I definitely didn't know who Robin Hitchcock was at the time. Not 100% um, sure I know who that is. Uh, he's a musician and he's good. Um, uh, but I'm, yeah, I've never been a big fan, mostly just through ignorance. Not, I'm not dismissing. You're not actively people. apathetic. Right, yes. Um, but I know our friend uh, West is a big fan of mm, okay. Hitchcock. All right. Uh, so, yeah, Beloved. Two hours and 50 minutes or something. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, an adaptation of uh, Toni Morrison's novel uh, produced by and starring Oprah Winfrey, right? Yeah. Uh, and a good well performance. As, yeah, as well as Danny Glover and a uh, then new to us, Tandy Newton. Yeah. Right? Uh, anyway, what are your, having seen it more recently, what are your thoughts? Well, it's, you know, what's interesting is as I watched it, I don't think this movie ever registered to me as a Jonathan Demi film. If you had asked me before I started watching it, if you had asked me who directed Beloved, I would not have known the answer and I would not have arrived at him. Um, it is not a film I ever associated with him, but in watching it, uh, and thinking of him the way that I do and the way that I did, um, it, it fits, it fits exactly with, with what I'm saying is that it is a very Gothic. It's a very lavish, uh, film and one that is just crackling with energy, which I guess you would need to at that, at that length. But you know, it would have been so easy to just film this story with this time period as just this slow and yes, meditative, but mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Just, it could have been so straightforward and so conventional and ultimately, and been so important, Right, but like right. it does feel important, but it also feels like no. And there's a, there's an odd magic quality to the story. And I feel like he locks into that and uses that to dictate how he's going to make the film. Well, I think he, <clears throat> Uh, I think with his with the with his camera and editing choices, I think he makes the connection from uh, that it's in the movie, it's in the text as well. But from the supernatural premise yeah. to the underlying spirituality, yes. And I feel yes. like his um, in kind of a way, like I never thought I would make this comparison because in so many ways it's wrong but in kind of a terrence malick type way there's a spiritual way that the camera moves sure and the way that he guides you to look up and to uh, and 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 to be uh immersed in the world uh, around yeah. around you in the character world the characters are in uh like you're saying uh, like you've said before it's uh, it's um it welcomes you in yeah and and the idea okay so yeah let's let's go with that that's a neat idea is a spirituality and in this case, quite literally dealing with spirits and ghosts, like these things that are on the outside of the story, but still want to be an active part of it. It feels like the camera is that. Right. Um, this is not, like I said, this is not a film that you watch passively. And so many period films, whether they be about the Holocaust or slavery or, or, or a big moment in American history, even if it's about a small family or a small community, there's not merely an importance, but there tends to be a certain self-importance to it, which tends to make it very stodgy. Um, and this is not that this is, it, it almost feels like a ghost story, but I, but I'll stick with the word Gothic, like a, a very specific type of Southern Gothic, you know, um, honestly, as strange as it may sound, 
given that, you know, this is about these, these, these black characters as they struggle through life. Uh, and that Philadelphia is like this gay character as he struggles through life and eventually death. Uh, it seems like those movies would be sound similar. Like, sound like you said the, it sounded like you were saying the main character of Philadelphia is named Philadelphia. Oh, so, <laughs> this just the way you phrased it. <laughs> this is the scene where Philadelphia gets really into the opera. <laughs> um, so, uh, anyway, uh, but it could seem, um, these films could seem similar based on that. But honestly, I feel like stylistically, I feel like beloved has more in common with silence of the lambs because it's just, there's this weird dramatic, uh, it's not a thriller, but it seems to employ certain thriller techniques in the way it is cut, the way it is, it, it pulls you in and you don't know what's going to happen next. And in any kind of period film, I feel like I always know what's going to happen next. And I Mm -hmm. didn't think that with beloved. And that's why at two hours and 85 minutes or whatever, uh, I know that I know that goes into <laughs> three right. hours. That's yeah. a joke. I'm no, making, I understand. It's two hours and 52 minutes. I okay. Know. At two hours and 52 minutes, it did not seem like a slog to me. You know, and I'm somebody, I love David Lean, but even some of his movies that are longer have moments that are a little bit slow. But I was, I'm glued to the screen when I'm watching Beloved uh, in a way that, again, you know, I, I, I keep, I keep invoking various imagery with, with Jonathan Demi, but he's a guy that I feel like I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and not in the standard thriller way, although somehow that as well, but just, I'm leaning forward. I'm very, I'm eager to see what's going to happen next, regardless of the genre. Um, I want to go back and again, the cinematographer here is talk Fujimoto once there again, you go. um, but I want to go back to what we were saying about Silence of the Lambs and, and connect to, to beloved in the way that, um, it doesn't that you were that you were saying it doesn't feel like it's you know uh, roped off or hung on a wall. It feels yeah um, uh, tactile. Mm, um, that, yeah, that, that's good. And I think that is that's part Jonathan Emmy, but it's also very much him. Um, really, you know, bringing the source material to life. He's not just adapting the story; he's bringing the feel of the novel. This is uh, I uh, I did actually read this novel when I was in high mm. school, um, and it's amazing. Uh, and there is a a real uh, as much as it's about ghosts and stuff, it's also very much about the flesh. Um, and you've got that manifested certainly in um, I think. Oprah Winfrey has scars on her back from being whipped. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but also the way the beloved ends up manifesting. There's all sorts of, there's bodily fluids that yeah. happen and, 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 and all sorts of stuff. And that doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't feel like a, uh, it, you know, there were bodily fluids in the neon demon as well, but these actually feel like you're yeah. standing there when the, when, when it's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, okay. So I don't talk much about my color thing on here. Do I? Oh yeah. You know, no. the thing I'm talking about. I right? do know. Okay. Um, <laughs> you don't like colored people. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels like, I feel like maybe 530 episodes <laughs> and we should start to get into that. Right. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, no, it's, uh, so I'm sure we've mentioned it before. So I have this, uh, thing I have ever since I was a kid. I thought everybody did. Uh, and I remember, I believe it was when I was talking to you when I first realized really? that not everybody had this. Is that true? Um, yeah. Cause I was, uh, I, I just, it's not an aura thing. I just, 
in my mind, I just asso- instinctively associate almost everything in the world with a certain color. Um, sometimes it changes. It usually doesn't. Uh, people usually, like, as I get closer to them, uh, they change. color, right? Yeah. Like three times. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I th- You know what? Honestly, uh, sorry, I think you you were orange, uh-huh. like a very dark orange, and then you moved into black, which you seem to take as a, an insult. I don't know what any of these colors means, uh-huh. uh, and I think you're back to orange. Actually, a reddish orange now. Huh. Um, Jen was a pea green and uh, is now uh, maroon. Um, most pe- Jason has only, has only ever been green. Um, my mom is a light orange. Uh, my brother is a dark brown and my dad was black. What about your cats? Charlie is brown. Uh-huh. Molly is black. Molly is black. Is yeah, black right. Cat. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it just, uh, is <laughs> as easy as that. that um, okay. So, so, okay. What does that have to do with Jonathan Demi? So, well, I'll say about beloved, you know, and so movies, uh, you know, movies will often have a, uh, a color as well. Um, now, sometimes if, if we're talking about three colors blue, well, sorry, sometimes it just dictates itself. <laughs> um, beloved is a very deep purple with like a twinge of red. And here's the weird thing. Uh, not a lot of movies have that color. Um, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes and saying like, this sounds really made up. Uh, a certain, uh, certain relatives of mine have accused me of making it up. It's not, it, there's a real thing. Uh, I've, I've met other people that, that have it. And so what happened was, uh, years ago we were living together and I was using blue to describe something. I said, you know, it's like very blue. And you said, what the hell are you talking about? Huh. And I said, you know, it's just a blue. And you said, no, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and, and I said, wait a second. So, like this thing is blue and like I, we were speaking different language and then I finally realized that, Oh, you don't have the color thing. And then Jen was fascinated by it. It turned it into a weird, a weird party trick that I don't like. Yeah, um, I wouldn't like that. No way. Um, <laughs> and she's like, well, what's this person? I said, I just met him. <laughs> so honestly, he still has a color. It's usually silver. Like, a you know, if I just meet someone, it's usually like, and I never talk to them again. Like if I meet them at a party, it's usually like a very light what, silver. Has anyone ever stayed silver after you've gotten to know them? Yes. Who? Somebody, somebody who's in a Bible study of mine. Okay. Um, anyway, so that's neither here nor there. The point is, uh, what you see is what you get with that person. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. They did not get any deeper. <laughs> um, so, uh, but beloved is just like this deep, purple Uh with red like it's this it's just like dripping with with a very specific type of atmosphere like when i think of purple i think of something that just that is very dense and very very tactile and and somehow warm and and welcoming and i don't know it's just a it's it's an odd thing and and Okay, we don't want to do the movie part of the the part of the trick thing, but I am curious as to how your color association with Beloved compares to other Jonathan Demme films. Well, let's take a look here. Hang on. (laughs) Well, we've already talked about some. Swimming in Cambodia is a light, a very light gray. Silence of the Lambs is a dark red. Is that because Spalding Gray? What was that? Uh, That must be it. (laughs) I, I honestly, I doubt that. Um, Huh. Truth about Charlie is a very light blue. Well, that's, that's not go. Oh, not, sorry. Let's not go forward. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and Philadelphia is a, 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 a light pink. 
uh, sorry, a, a dark pink, light purple. Um, I think you should rearrange your DVD and Blu-ray collection based on what color you associate the movies with. That would drive me insane. <laughs> Um, uh, wouldn't it be it would wouldn't it come naturally to you it might yeah um i think jen would kill me uh <laughs> she doesn't want to she doesn't even like the idea of me splitting up my uh dvds and blu-rays i like that you're still salty about that all these years later <laughs> oh my yes absolutely <laughs> all right so we talked about um beloved indeed uh so yeah unless you have something to say um but any uh the this musical stuff and, you know, rock stuff. In I don't, I feel like you've um, seen more of that than I have. Well, let's talk about the truth about Charlie then. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't really remember it. I didn't really care for it, but I, it's definitely, it fits into what I was saying. It's that it's a very active film. Uh, yeah. And I think you defend it a lot more than most people. Yes. I defend it mostly because I mean, I do think it, that it's better than interpretation, but I mostly defend it by way of saying that charade is overrated. Okay. <laughs> it's, got it's a it. remake of charade. Um, and I've always found that movie to, um, uh, not be able to handle its shifts in tone, you know, straight is like, no. well, there's people trying to kill other people, but then there's also like Cary Grant's in the shower in his suit. Like I just never <laughs> have been able to justify the things. I've, yeah. I've often felt the same way about Brian De Palma's Carrie, um, in that it has kind of like, like the, the girls in gym are like the cameras like sped up while they're working out and it's like a, almost like a montage, but then it's like, it's Carrie. I, I, I've always had, maybe it's me. Brian De Palma is a, we should do a profile on him. Honestly, he's an yeah. odd, I need to see more of his films, but he's an odd duck. Um, but just about Charlie, I feel like it's sort of shambolic the entire way through. Okay. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it, it's like, uh, it, it, it's, I, it, Truth About Charlie is never trying to convince you that it's, like, great, I guess. Uh, it, it does kind of feel like... It feels like the kind of movies that Steven Soderbergh sometimes makes. Sure. You kind of you get the impression that he's, like, doing this just to see if he could or see if he yeah. could have fun with it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's kind of how Truth About Charlie feels to me. It's like, hey, let's see what happens if we remake charade and we do like a lot of steady cam shots and everything's kind of you know uh you know we don't treat the stakes as particularly high yeah. even though they are on the page like uh it's i i defend it because it's an interesting movie i think tandy newton's in that one too right yeah and tim okay. robbins that's right and i believe uh, ted ted levine is in that as well so uh yeah he brought in some some uh old friends so, okay, next for me is Manchurian Candidate. Um, well, I did see the documentary The Agronomist. Right, yes. He, he made a lot of documentaries, and most of them were about music. Okay. Uh, but this is about a... Uh, Jean Dominique is his name. Um, and he... Uh, uh, a Haitian radio journalist and human rights activist. And this is um, clearly... Uh, a, a movie or a, a person that Jonathan Demi held in high regard because right. he was an outspoken, publicly outspoken radio activist at a time when in, in a place uh, when being so was, you know, literally putting your life on the line. Right. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's a, uh, so it's a, it's an active 
advocacy and of lionizing this person that Jonathan Henry feels needs to be lionized. But also, and this is probably what made me want to watch it in the first place. Besides, besides Jonathan Demi, the, the, the music is by Wycliffe John. Um, and that's just, I always had to mention just once again, he works with yeah. sort of pop artists. Um, and he, you know, he, so he makes this sort of, uh, you know, Caribbean infused score. That's really, um, um, you, I, I guess you'd think something like this would be either dour or propulsive or yes, bombastic or whatever, yeah. but it's, it's almost like you could dance to the music in the agronomist. Yeah. Um, hmm. anyway, uh, worth mentioning because he was, a successful, uh, documentarian. I think we talked about him, didn't we? When we did our, not that long ago, we did an episode about directors who do both yes. uh, narrative and, uh, and documentary films. And I believe yes. we, we talked about Jonathan, Jonathan Demi. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, after, after that, okay, let's get back to the Manchurian candidate. Okay. Which I haven't seen since it was a new DVD. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, for me as well, I think I actually saw it in the theater. I bought it, oh, okay. uh, but I haven't watched it in a while. Um, I have a fairly good memory for it. It's really yeah. good. I like it yeah, a lot. I remember liking it a lot. And it's a, it's a, uh, fantastic Denzel Washington performance. Boy. I feel like, Denzel Washington is obviously a very handsome man and mm. tends to get cast in leading roles. Yeah. Right. And so it's not, I think he often comes across looking good. You yeah. know what I mean? And mentioning Canada is like proof that it's like, no, he's still an actor first and he's willing to go where the character needs to go. Even if it makes him, it's, it's an unvain performance. It really is. And, and I think it takes you a while to realize that as well, um, because the character gets crazier and, yeah. you know, it ultimately gets to, you know, and this this played big into the trailer, but I think it's completely earned where, you know, eventually this guy, he's trying to prove something. So he just has this big stack of papers in his hand as he's just like walking down the street and he's very disheveled. And then mm-hmm. somebody knocks his papers over and he just like starts yelling at them and just at that moment, Denzel Washington goes away and the character goes away. And this becomes the guy you've seen on the street right, yeah. who goes crazy. Who's a little bit crazy. Um, maybe even a lot. And yeah. And when I think of the original Manchurian candidate, I do love it. I think I, I, I prefer it to this, this version, but that's a film that I also think I would describe the way I talk about Jonathan Demi. Like there's a real en- crackling energy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film I think isn't quite to that level, but it definitely fits in with what we're talking about, which is it is a, uh, it is in many ways a very uh, solid conventional thriller, but it's moments like that that can make you a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think what he does with Liev Schreiber's character um, who is the characters played by Lawrence Harvey in the original. And in that the character is, um, he's a little bit cold, but he actually is a, is a a good guy who is interested romantically, uh, in, uh, this girl and is trying to make jokes and all that. Whereas the way Liev Schreiber plays him and the way, uh, Jonathan Demi directs him like there is just something wrong with this guy and there is a ticking time bomb quality to him which adds to the tension Mm -hmm. um 
It's a film that absolutely, you know, when people talk about good remakes, uh, not necessarily remakes that are better or as good as the original, I feel like Manchurian Candidate needs to be talked about more. It's great, great performances all around. And just, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it stands to reason that Jonathan Demme would be a good director of thrillers because he does have, like I said, the, he has that energy. His films are full of life and you're constantly leaning forward in order to uh, discern what is going on and what could happen next. Okay. Um, uh, I feel like we should at this point mention the, the Neil Young trilogy, I guess. Right. Um, you are welcome to do so. Uh, yeah. I mean, he made uh, three movies with, with Neil Young, I don't know what else to what else to say. Their concert films and their home videos. Um, uh, uh, I don't know. I feel like I don't know what else to say that, except that he made. This is something he did a lot. His work with musicians. He really yeah. liked music, liked all kinds of music, which is something that I find very inspirational. You know mm-hmm. that he made. Uh, you know, movies with Talking Heads and Neil Young, and then had Wyclef Jean and yeah. Springsteen like doing music. It's uh, it's it's all over the place. And then we'll get to uh, Rachel Getting Married, which yeah. is maybe of his non-concert films, maybe the most musical movie he yeah. made, which is saying something because they're all pretty pretty musical. Um, but this includes, you know, there's people in this movie, like there's a lot of actual musicians in the movie. You yeah. know, like. Um, uh, Tunde Adabimpe from um, from TV on the radio, um, but then also in the the uh, just in the in the wedding party, there's um, Fab Five Freddy uh, and um, other people as well. I'm, I'm trying to remember who else, but uh, yeah, you would know this, not me. I I don't know much about music. Um, that's not true. <laughs> I know about the music I know about, yeah, yeah, exactly. um, but that's about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, Rich getting married was, um, and remains my favorite film of 2008. Um, it was also a fairly early, uh, date film that, uh, from me and my now wife. Oh, uh, cause we started dating at the end of 2008. So it was probably wow. like, January 2009 when we saw it in the theater. I did not realize that you guys have been together that long. That's exciting. (laughs) Coming up on 10 years. Uh, I guess, I mean, not really. Uh, it's 20, it's early 2017. Let me say this closer to eight years to 10 years than not. (laughs) That's true. So, uh, check and mate. And also, yeah, do you go from, I mean, you, you guys have been married for, uh, over 10 years, almost 12, almost 12. Yeah. So do you even count? Like, do you even recognize like the anniversary of your first date? Is that nah. something you even think about? Yeah. No. I don't think we do either. I think it's a thing that we're occasionally aware of. Um, but not really. Um, yeah, I know the date of our, it was December 19th, uh, 2008 was our first date, but that's just cause I'm, I tend to be good with dates. Um, but we don't like we don't celebrate that. We don't do anything on December 19th. Yeah. It's, I used to know like all of our, all, all of the dates. And then after a while I was like, wow, we've been together a while. We have a lot of these, uh, you know what? Let's just focus on wedding anniversary. Let's just do that one. And, uh, that's basically what we do. Yeah. And birthdays, you know? Yeah, I could, but I, you know what? I can't tell you the day that I proposed, but it was the day after Thanksgiving, November, 2013. Right. So 2013. Anyway, that's not the point. When did I propose? That's, uh, it was late May, like the 24th, I think, but now I don't recall. Oh boy, that's off-putting. 
I know we have it on like, so we, I, uh, this is we're so off topic, but I proposed at a winery in Escondido and it was like crazy busy there. And so we like sat and like had some wine and then we went down the road to another winery where we, we were like the only people there. Ah. And those were the first people we told other than like, you know, texting our like yeah. family or whatever. But the first like people we told that we just got engaged were at a different winery. Yeah. Um, than the one where we got, <laughs> where we got engaged and that woman, the woman who owned the winery gave us a bottle and wrote like on it, like our names and the date. So I know oh, we, great. we have a, we drank the bottle. We have an empty bottle. <laughs> <laughs> we drank the bottle right then and there. Actually, yeah. I think, um, uh, but yeah, we, we have a bottle, uh, that has the date on it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this is all turning, coming back to weddings. There you go. And that's what Rachel getting married is about. It's about a wedding. Uh, at a beautiful home uh, in, I can't remember where it's supposed to be. It's been a long time. I uh, don't remember, actually, yeah. Connecticut. Sure. Right. Let's say Connecticut. That sounds right. Uh, um, and uh, Rachel, the title character, is played by Rosemary DeWitt, right. but is not really the lead of the movie. Yeah. Um, Anne Hathaway. Solid supporting as, character, oh, yeah, certainly, yeah. but yeah. Um, Anne Hathaway as Kim, Rachel's sister, is the lead, and the plot is that... Is about everyone coming to their parents' house for the wedding, and uh, Kim. It's it's about Rachel, but Kim is the kind of person who can't not make it about herself, and is also a drug addict. Yeah, and our friend Mather Zickle is in it. Yeah, our best friend Mather Zickle <laughs> is in it. Uh, man, that's a good movie, and it just it's it's operating on so many on so many levels. Uh, I did a more than one lesson about it a while ago with the companion film Ironweed, and now. Uh, Sometime in the near future, I'll be doing an episode about Manchester by the Sea with the companion film, Rachel Getting Married. Um, uh, I've never seen Ironweed. I read the book. Oh, really? I read the oh. book. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, no, so I, I think Rachel Getting Married is maybe the culmination of some of the things we've talked about or that you've talked about, especially in that, in the, that you are there thing. Boy. Um, to the point where like Rachel Getting Married almost feels like... Like it, we, we've talked about Jonathan Demme being great at making thrillers and thrillers are very sort of like plot and structure dependent. Yeah. And now I'm sure that someone who has studied screenwriting could tell me what the three act structure of Rachel getting married is, oh. but it doesn't feel like that when you're in it, you know, it feels like it's completely organic and, and, yeah. and flowing from one scene to the other. And you, you ne- I, I never feel like I'm being told a story. I feel like yeah. I'm being dropped into this home in let's say Connecticut. Yeah. I, I mean, it does, I think it does fit into a certain three act structure specifically with, uh, developing relationships. You know, for example, when our, uh, best friend in the world, Mather Zickel, uh, shows up, uh-huh. it's at a very specific time. It is a, this may sound strange, uh, Han Solo he's kind of that role, you know, he is, <laughs> yeah, that's he shows up. He's one of the only people that understands her. Cause he's very much from her, mm-hmm. from her world. Uh, and then, you know, certain bits of information are introduced to us. Uh, even if the characters know it already, it's a thing they don't want to think about, but when it is, when it's introduced, even though they already know it, it is, it is essentially new information for them and for the audience. And so, um, so I think it would fit into a three act structure, not the most conventional one, obviously, but, uh, but yeah. And this, yeah, the, the crackling energy thing, I mean, that is this film, but even, even, and maybe especially when you don't want it, this is the character of Kim is so 
broken in a lot of ways and, and does make things about herself. Mm -hmm. She's somebody that I don't like spending time with. And yet I love, uh, this film feels very much, I don't think I'm, I'm probably not the first miss first person to say that it feels like a Cassavetes film. Um, just it, it, it lacks conventional structure and it's just characters that, and you're just thrown in the middle of it and scenes go on Mm -hmm. longer than most movies would have them, uh, do so. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't thought of Cassavetes cause I think I tend to think of Altman because he also made oh, a movie sure. about a wedding. Um, but yeah, if, if there's another director who would have put in an extended sequence of a dishwasher loading contest, it might be John Cassavetes. No question about it. Uh, and just one, and just one toast after another. Uh, that's a very Cassavetes yeah. type of thing. Um, and then of course, a really awkward toast that just won't fucking end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and it is that it's taking, it's interesting that you would say it's a culmination. I, I, I think I would be inclined to think of that, but I'll bet, uh, I'm about to insult people that may or may not exist. Um, I'll bet for some You're people, adoring fans again, <laughs> Did I come off super shitty? Like <laughs> no. there were like five people. No, that, but now you know, they're starting to think hey, maybe he did come off super shitty. <laughs> um, there was uh, first off, I don't push this podcast at that f- festival at all. Right. Uh, there were two people I gave a card to and it was only after talking to them for a while. I'm like, you know, and I think they'll like this. Um, but uh, I did have this. I put it on Facebook um, and this is verbatim the discussion. So I, I walk in and I've got my stuff and I go to one of the volunteers and I say, uh, Hey, where uh, do I set up my table? And they said, what's your name? I said, Tyler Smith. And he said, the Tyler Smith. <laughs> and I paused and I said, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. <laughs> and he said, no, I saw your talk last year. It was great. And I said, Oh, okay. Thank you. And so he just pointed it over there. So that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is I genuinely felt like this asshole's making fun of me. No, but I mean, that's a, like, that's a new to be addressed as the Tyler. No one's ever called me the David Bax. And yet there is only one as far as I know. Yeah. There's probably another one. Probably, but who gives a shit? <laughs> exactly. See, there probably is another In one. Fact, I know that. Yeah. Cause I've obviously like most people have Googled my own sure. name. I know there's other David Baxes. I think there's like a dentist in Indiana or something. <laughs> Does he have a podcast? He <laughs> might. He probably does. <laughs> uh, so what I was going to say, these people that I'm making fun of, I, I undoubtedly assume that uh, there are people out there that would say that Rachel getting married is, is off-brand and off-putting. Uh, they would probably look at Silence of the Lambs or Philadelphia or something that's a bit more conventional. Yeah. Um, n- not that he necessarily makes them in a conventional way, but something that, movies that are maybe a bit more crowd-pleasing and say, like, well, sh- certainly that is when he's at his best. Um, but I feel like Rachel getting married is him taking these techniques from these other films and putting it into this thing that you would never associate with him except in that energy. Um, yeah. Positive or negative. I see what you're saying, but I, I guess it, yeah, the things that I respond to right. are there. I would say top three Demi for me. Okay. Number one, Rich getting married. Sure. Number two, something wild. Number three, stop making sense. So now hang on. Are we at the end? Cause I do have one more. Um, I'm at the end because I haven't seen, um, um, well, I know his other 
feature, his last feature was Ricky and the Flash. Okay. Right? Yeah, which I didn't see and wanted to. I heard uh, great. I heard yeah. good things about it. Yeah. But yeah, you have one more because you um, saw... A Master Builder. Yes. Uh, based on a Henry Gibson play and written by Wallace Shawn. And Ibsen is really interesting uh, because I feel like you can... I've read a handful of, of his plays and um, he's in, he's interesting because you could play him a number of different ways. You could play it very stolid and very... Um, very uh, very serious and, mm-hmm. and quiet and meditative. Um, and that's fine. But the, the characters that he creates are often very nervous and don't know what to say in certain situations that doesn't stop them from talking. <laughs> they will often, uh, assert themselves. And with a master builder, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting screenplay. Um, I have not read, uh, the, the source material, but, um, but you have this character played by Wallace Shawn in a wonderful performance, um, of this guy who he's not necessarily powerful, but he's well known and he's, uh, and he's well respected and he just sort of assumes that everybody's going to do what he wants. And if they don't, he will manipulate them and he has done some bad things in his life and he will do everything he can to make sure people don't know that because he has a certain standing that he definitely feels like he has earned. It is a character that is very off putting. Um, and there's something about Wallace Shawn, who, you know, we think of as the guy from Princess Bride or the voice of, T, uh, you know, the T-Rex from Toy Story. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, if you've seen My Dinner with Andre and then you see this, you realize like, oh, he has a lot of emotional range. And his, uh, what he does with that character. And again, the very you are there quality of, Demi's direction, it just feels very, you know, I hate to repeat myself, but it just, it breathes life into material that could have seemed very repetitive and very distancing and off-putting. You know, we're watching a bunch of characters we don't really like that much. Um, But I do think that Jonathan Demi has a great deal of love and affection for the characters in his, in probably all of his movies. I think maybe even, even somebody like Jamie gum, he has a certain degree of sympathy for. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so even, and what's interesting is maybe the, maybe Wallace Shawn's character in a master builder, he might be the biggest monster that, uh, Jonathan Demi has ever worked with, but he's an emotional monster. And, um, but even then he finds a certain degree of sympathy, uh, in that man. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a film that could definitely be seen as minor Demi, but it is a a really fascinating film that is definitely, I would say, um, cut from the same cloth as Rachel getting married, even though there's not the chaos, there's not the chaos of Rachel getting married, but that's because the character wields so much control over everybody he knows Mm -hmm. so the chaos is underneath the surface but it's definitely it's just this constant tension that could boil over at any moment and it's uh it's very uncomfortable um but it's a very good movie as well uh yeah i I think i actually have that um that blu-ray um that's odd why i think criterion sent us two 
Oh, so, really? By accident? I mean, I shouldn't say that out loud because you have one from Criterion. Right, because I, I got the three-set uh, okay. Wallace on Andre Gregory set. And that was sent to us to review, right? Yeah. And then I think they sent us a Master Builder separately, and I was like, well, Tyler already has this. So I think I yeah. have the, the Blu-ray. All right, check it out. You're um, a Demi fan. But yeah, don't tell Criterion. Mm. I should cut this out. They're going to ask for it back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, This has been a blast. um, And it's made me want to go back and watch all of these movies, especially Rachel D. Married and and Beloved um, uh, and Something Wild and all of them and Stop Making Sense and all of them. Um, But you can, uh, yeah, you can, you can find us. uh, By the way, you know, uh, speaking of Wallace Shawn, um, uh, you know, he was on Gossip Girl. I did not. You're naming all the things he's famous for, and I was like, "When's he going to get to Gossip Girl?" Oh, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, um, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find all sorts of movie reviews, including Tyler's Blu-ray review of the a Master Builder and the other. Uh, if you search for it, uh, our search function works very well. You should be able to find it, no problem. Uh, that's at BattleshipRetention.com. There's all kinds of stuff uh, up there. You can uh, email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com, especially if you have questions for our Ask BP video mailbag segment. Um, you can email them to me, David at BattleshipRetention.com. Um, Tyler, uh, your other podcast is called More Than One Lesson. Yeah. You were just promoting it like the Dickens out there in uh, Orlando. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you got lined up? So uh, this week, um, it's not an official episode. It's a mini-sode. It's an hour long, and it's me by myself uh, answering listener questions, including somebody asked what my 10 favorite TV shows of all time are. Oh, wow. Ten. Uh, yeah, it's, it was uh, it was rough, and I'm sure if you were to ask me right now what the ten would be, my one and two would probably be the same. The other eight could, you know, some of them might not even be in there. Um, wow, that is tough. Yeah, it's honestly I found it liberating. If they had said five, even though I have a top five by making a top ten, uh, if they had said five, I feel like it would have been yeah. I would have felt very stifled. But I got let's see, on top of my head. Buffy. Okay. Hannibal. Okay. Seinfeld. Oh, Hannibal. Fuck. <laughs> Seinfeld. Uh, Seinfeld. Uh, Seinfeld's my number three. Home movies might squeak in there. Hmm. That's a good one. Firefly. Okay. Uh, oh, The Sopranos, obviously. It's my number six, How I think. How could I not men- mention The Sopranos? Uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll come up with, with more. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There's uh, there's some notable uh, omissions. Oh, that's my number one. Ah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there are some notable omissions. I feel like I cannot in good conscience put the Simpsons on there anymore because it has not, you know, you kind of have to look at the season, the series in general. And when it was good, it was the best, but it's not that anymore. And do you feel, is it okay to put, would would you be okay with putting a show on that is still airing or does that feel? I like think I would be okay with that. Yeah. I put South park on there. Yeah. Cause I might squeak Archer in. Sure. Sure. I, I, you know what? If it was only in its second season, then maybe yeah. I'd say no. But... Oh, Adventure Time. Oh, okay. All right. So I think I'm at nine now. Just got to find one more. Angel. There you go. Sure. Why not? Um, but yeah, you can listen to me uh, talk about my top ten. Somebody asked, you know, who, uh, what director I would uh, want to have on more than one lesson uh, that is currently working. Um, I will let people discover that. Yeah. And then uh, someone asked, um, 
fi- uh, asked for a list of films that in watching, I feel a deep connection and love for humanity. So, uh, I put together like six or seven movies there. Harvey. <laughs> was that on there? It wasn't. Why did you say, why did you say that so fast? <laughs> Just so Harvey seems like a, you know, my first answer, it is always my first answer. I heart Huckabees. Huh? When I saw that film, like I just, I really felt a connection to my fellow that's, man. That's always your first answer when someone asks you that very specific question. It's a thing that, well, it's, it's honestly, it's a thing that I have thought before. Okay. Um, just, it was a film that invigorated me, not merely about film, but about being alive. All right. Um, what else do we do here? Um, uh, follow us on Instagram as well. Oh yes, please Fellowship do. Pretension. Uh, and thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.